All right, welcome to another podcast edition of White Collar Crimes, a podcast where we show you the only color that truly matters in our criminal justice system is green. As always, I am the host, Ryan Horn. Great to have you aboard. You know, the Eiffel Tower is one of the most famous landmarks, really, in the world, and uh, hopefully someday I'll get a chance to see it, but who knows. But did you know that it was involved in one of the big-time, most successful white-collar crimes of the last century? Probably haven't heard of this guy. Many of you maybe have, but I'd say probably a great deal of you probably have not. But a man by the name of Vister Lustig, and he was a 20th century fraudster known for the man that sold the Eiffel Tower, quote-unquote. Not an easy feat to pull off. Now, he was born in Bohemia, Austria, Hungary, in 1890, to a fairly well-to-do Jewish family. And he was reported to be a pretty smart and gifted student growing up. And while studying in Paris at the age of 19, he took up gambling, which, you know, we know from other podcasts we've done on here, it can lead to a certain amount of white-collar crime. You know, gambling addictions can be just as severe as drug addictions. Uh, some of you might remember a while back we did the podcast on Art Schleetster, the uh, former Ohio State quarterback and briefly played in the NFL with the Baltimore and Indianapolis Colts and horribly uh, ruined his life from gambling addictions and, you know, and probably will spend a good part of the rest of his life locked up because of that he already has spent a good part of his adulthood locked up because of gambling. And it all started on a trip to the track when he was in high school with friends to the horse track and, you know, got lucky the first time. And it was a high and an addiction he could never quite overcome or match. And it's a problem that plagued his life, destroyed his NFL career, his family, his friends, and on and on. Well, this is probably where this guy's lust and need for money began. And he was an educated man, very smart. Went, as I said, went to some, you know, came from a fairly privileged family, went to nice schools. He was said to have spoken several languages, which made his international schemes that he was involved in uh, very easy to pull off. And it certainly was a skill that came in handy for a lot of his scams. And it allowed him to accumulate a lot of wealth and property by being able to pull off scams in really various parts of the world. And he operated mainly, though, on the ports of France and New York City. And one early famous scam that he was known to do, it included him scamming some travelers into investing into a non-existent Broadway show, you know, because a lot of people travel to New York from all over the world to see Broadway shows. And, you know, especially a hundred years ago or so when, you know, there was no television or movie theaters like what we have now and the Internet and all these different various mediums that we have to entertain ourselves. Sometimes a live show was it. That was where the main entertainment action was happening, and this was something that uh, he took advantage of and frauded people, defrauded people into investing in a show that did not exist. But he's probably most famous for his scam involving the Eiffel Tower. You know, again, I know most of you have seen that. We know what we're talking about. It's, again, in France and one of the most famous landmarks, really, monuments in the world, and he took advantage of that popularity. Because at this time, many of the local newspapers 
And again, shows you how times have changed. You know, this is a time again where newspapers were the main form of information being passed. You know, now, I mean, they're still around, but let's face it, they're they're on life support. They're on their last legs and probably not going to be around a whole lot longer. But at this time, that was the main source of information. And many local papers wrote of concerns they had that to need to raise the funds to begin maintenance on this. You know, it's out in the weather. Any type of monument over time is going to have to have maintenance and upkeep. And this was becoming a problem around this time. Uh, you know, years of exposure to the weather and whatnot had, you know, put it in need of some maintenance and some upgrades. And this inspired Lustig to fraudulently seek out funds on behalf of the government. He even hired a forger to produce some fake, officially-looking uh, stationery for him, you know, like it was officially from the French government. And he began to entice some scrap metal dealers by posing as the, quote, Deputy Director of the General of the Ministry of Posts and Telegraphs. Say that three times really fast. Uh, but this is what he came up with, and he told them that the French government intended to sell the tower for scrap, which obviously would ignite a lot of public outcry. You know, this Eiffel Tower is very sacred to the French people. It's their, you know, their national landmark. It's the one they're known for. And, you know, the sight of that being scrapped, you know, for money would probably outrage the overwhelming majority of the people in that country. So he motivated the scrap people to get involved and let's raise the funds and let's get this upgraded and, and back up to uh, standard. Now, he told these scrap metal people that if this got out, that it would outrage the public, and they needed to kind of keep this on the down low, what he was going to do, because he didn't want to attract a lot of attention, you know. And again, this is a time before internet where people couldn't, you know, really do background check on him very thoroughly like you can now, you know, check into his past. And, you know, I'm sure now, you know, people would be able to research and see if this office really exists or, you know, check if he's got social, social media profiles you know, background records on and on. It wouldn't be as easy to pull off a scam like this now, but at the time, what he came up with was pretty cunning, really. And he was able to see receive a large bribe from a local Paris businessman posing as a corrupt government official. And once he got this bribe, he then fled back to Austria. And he believed the businessman would be too ashamed to report this con to the police. And, you know... If you follow anything about street crime at all, you know this happens sometimes. Sometimes people that are victimized, particularly you see this in drug deals. You know, sometimes drug dealers are robbed in their transactions. Why? Because it's not going to be reported to the police. You know, you're not going to go to the police and report that dirty drug money you had has been stolen from a rival drug dealer, most likely, or something to that effect. So a lot of these types of transactions... Get, they get away with it because the victim is too ashamed to go to the police. And honestly, you see that in a lot of white-collar crimes. You know, it's not easy to admit you've been tricked or been swindled. You know, most of us like to think we're pretty smart, we're pretty competent, and we're aware of what's going on, and it can't happen to us. And people do get victimized, and, you know, humiliation is one of the things that white-collar victims suffer, not just the shame or you know, the financial loss that they suffer. They suffer a lot of shame and embarrassment. And he took advantage of this, knowing that most likely this victim would not go to the police. So after a year of seeing nothing being reported in the papers or anything like that, he decided to return back to Paris. 
Having the success of the first scam selling the Eiffel Tower, he decided to attempt this scam once again. But this time the police were alerted. And once he got wind that the police were on his tail, he fled to the United States to avoid capture. You know, again, this is a time when you could go and just disappear, assume a new identity, you know, probably change, you know, some things about your identity, some disguises. Real easy to do back then, you know, certainly much more difficult than it is now. And, you know, certainly with uh, customs and passports and things like that, you know, we use now, which, you know, they had passports back then, but not the technology to track them and everything like we do now. So it was easy for him to flee back to the United States to avoid capture from the French authorities. And while in the U.S., this is during the Great Depression, Lustig approached gangster Al Capone and proposed a possible scam to get involved in. Pretty ballsy guy, if you ask me. Uh, He convinced Capone to give him $50,000 for a scam, which, you know, 100 years ago or so, you know, plus, give or take, that's a lot of money, uh, you know. And to risk scamming uh, someone like Capone, who would have no problem brutally killing you for a lot less than that, uh, that is pretty gutsy, honestly. It's dangerously gutsy. And the scam was that he would later return the $50,000 to Capone saying, well, just the scam fell through. I couldn't get it going. And his intention was that this would give Capone the sense that he's dealing with an honest guy here. This is a guy that didn't take my $50,000 and run. So I can trust this guy. You know, he he's legitimately got something going. He's not out to scam me. He brought this money back. So I can trust him. And you know, we've talked about this over and over again. That's also one of the aspects of a white-collar crime. There has to be a position and a level of trust. And we see it all the time in many different ways, whether it's financial planners, you know, people in the financial institutions. We've seen it with medical where doctors abuse the trust of their patients, you know, on and on and on again. But there has to be some level of trust that the victim has with the person perpetrating the white-collar crime. That is a key feature and element in white-collar crime. And when he would gain his trust, what he would do is then convince Capone to give him $5,000 to, quote, tide him over until he could get this original plan and things going. And Capone thinking, well, you know, he didn't run off with my $50,000. I can probably make a small little $5,000 investment here to trust him and to get him going and and then until we can carry out and pull off the big scheme. And he makes off with $5,000, which off somebody who would kill him for way less than that, that was a very dangerous move. And he continued during this time to operate in a lot of scams, many involving counterfeiting. And, you know, even with the technology we have now and today, counterfeiting is still a problem. It's still something that uh, officials fight and deal with. I've seen local cases even here in my area where it happens, even some involving juvenile offenders. So it is still a problem, believe it or not, in today's day and technology that we have. There are people that are still running counterfeit schemes, you know, and, you know, contrary to popular belief, that's a lot of what the Secret Service actually deals with. You know, people think the Secret Service is just exclusively protecting the president, and that is you know, a big part of what they're known for and part of what they do. But, you know, they are a branch of the Treasury Department. And a lot of things that the Secret Service here in the U.S., they do, it does involve, you know, counterfeit tracking and, and financial crimes like that. So, you know, it's still a problem today. It didn't stop, you know, once technology got better. And, and he had a variety of scams he was involved in. But one of them, he had 
was known for was having some really good counterfeiting skills, which, you know, made him a lot of money back then. But it was his dishonesty with the women in his life that really would finally bring him down. When his mistress learned that he was fooling around with another mistress, she placed an anonymous tip to the fed, federal authorities in the United States. And you know, that old saying, you know, hell hath no fury like a woman scorned, that's something that uh, Mr. Lustig would soon find out, you know, had he, uh, you know, just had one mistress and not fooled around with any others, maybe he may not have angered this one enough to turn him in, you know, obviously she was aware of his scams and things, and that's why she turned him in. And on May 10th, 1935, he was arrested for counterfeiting in New York City. Now, he managed to escape custody, which, you know, he's a con man. He's, you know, he's going to find a way to escape and do, you know, a lot of things. But he managed to escape custody, but he was captured about 27 days later in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. You know, what he went there for, I am not sure, but that's where he ended up going. Now, at his trial, he actually ended up pleading guilty, and he ended up getting sentenced to 15 years in prison, plus five years for the escape. And that's, just, to this day, a standard sentence uh, for an escape is about five years. I saw that happen when I was a county correction off, correctional officer many years ago, probably over 20 years ago. We had a case of a young man that was facing a murder charge, and he made an attempt. Actually, I saw two murder suspects make escape attempts, serious escape attempts, and they were captured and later, you know, convicted of that escape, and that was added on to their sentence. If I recall correctly, both of them ended up getting life sentences plus five. You know, and we laughed at the time. You know, does that mean when they die, they, you know, serve that five years, kind of like a weekend at Bernie's thing? Uh, who knows? But that is, you know, a pretty common sentence, five years. And, you know, once you go to the Department of Corrections with previous escape attempts in your past, uh, you... I, you know, haven't uh, worked in corrections for some years now, but when I did back then, the Illinois Department of Corrections, their jumpsuits had a big X on their back to, you know, signal and alert the correctional staff that this person has a track record and a serious history of escape attempts. So, you know, something that got him some extra time, the 15 years plus the five just for trying to escape. So if he hadn't tried to escape, who knows, he might have just done his little five years and that would have been the end of it. But in 1947, he contracted pneumonia in a federal prison in Missouri. And he ended up dying two days later at the age of 57. You know, still pretty young. And, you know, pneumonia was ended up what's getting him. So he actually did not get to serve out his sentence and get released and go out and prey on others. You know, and, and we've talked about that many times. Many of the ones that we cover in these cases, they end up do getting released later uh, to prey on other people. And we've covered cases on this uh, podcast where some of them did get out and indeed do just that. They went out and victimized others. And we've covered a lot where some of them got such lengthy sentences that wasn't going to be possible and they end up you know, dying in prison. Bernie Madoff died in prison. He would have never gotten out, thankfully, because I have no doubt he would have victimized you know, many, many more had he gotten the chance. You know, we talked about Stuart Parnell of the Peanut Corporation of America. You know, he, at his age, was pretty much given a life sentence, not likely to get out and, and you know, re-offend. And, but a overwhelming majority of them do get out and get a chance to re-offend. And, you know, that's the case 
in our criminal justice system that we have to realize that the majority of the people in the correctional system that are in, in prison at some point are going to get out. Now, some of them may do a lot of years. Some of them may be really old when they get out. But the overwhelming majority of them someday are going to be out again. And, uh, you know, they're going to seek, you know, new victims most likely. You know, not all of them. Some of them do actually, you know, cease to reoffend and try to get on with their lives. But a good chunk of them, whether street criminals or white-collar criminals, do attempt to seek out and victimize others. And, you know, it's kind of sad in his case because a very intelligent man, he's considered, if you read up a little bit more on him, and there's tons on the Internet you can look up and research about him. You know, again, he's the man that's known for, you know, selling the Eiffel Tower, great scam that he pulled off. But he had a lot of other ones you can read into that he pulled off, like I said earlier, particularly involving counterfeiting was kind of his trademark. But had he used that intelligence for good, you know, and, and operated and did legitimate business practices, there's no telling what kind of heights he could have reached. You know, a guy that spoke many languages, he could have found business success internationally and, and succeeded all over the world had he applied that for good. There's no telling what he would have accomplished. But you know, that's the case we see with almost all of these ones, you know, and I've found that over the years in covering these white-collar cases. This is not a case of, like you see sometimes, you know, people hit bad financial times and they're not able to make it, so they might steal or do something like that. Most of these ones, overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly, are not in any type of financial destitute situation. Most of them are intelligent enough and competent enough they could make money legitimately, but for some reason, and most likely just that greed for that little extra almighty dollar, they go to lengths to get it, to, and they don't care what laws they break or who they hurt along the way. You know, and I'll never forget what John D. Rockefeller said when they asked him how much money was enough. You know, this is the famous oil tycoon who I've read, if you adjust to today's dollars, probably would have been worth about $300 billion. You know, the oil tycoon from uh, late 1800s, early 1900s. And he said, one more dollar, that's how much is enough. You just can't get enough of it. And for some of these ones, it's not enough. And, and sadly, yeah, a lot of them could carry out legitimate business practices and, and do really well, you know, should they actually apply themselves. But, you know, for lack of morality and, you know, the lust and greed and the temptation of that quick, easy dollar, you know, to take a shortcut and take the easy way out, because that's a lot of times what gets a lot of us in trouble, you know, taking shortcuts and things like that. And that's, you know, really, I think what he did in his case, he probably just did not want to put the actual legitimate effort into being, you know, a legitimate businessman and earning money legitimately and, and applying himself. Again, lots of skills, educated man, very intelligent, spoke multiple languages, obviously very charming. And, you know, and a lot of these white collar criminals are, you know, who knows what he could have accomplished. But he didn't accomplish anything legitimately because of these reasons. But again, he has gone down in history, I guess. You know, if you reach and research the man who sold the Eiffel Tower, you'll get to read about his case and a lot more. So, well, keep with us. We've got some good episodes coming up. We've got some more coming up next week. We're going to talk about Ramil Robinson, famous uh, basketball player, college and brief NBA player, and some of the scams he pulled off, including victimizing his own adopted mother and father. Real sad case that this is, and we're going to cover that case. And we got some more coming up with some other famous fraudsters that started out really young even and worked their way high up in this. So, you know, keep with us. Uh, 
As I always say, like our Facebook page, White Collar Crimes. Uh, you know, if you got an idea for a show, you can message me on our Anchor FM hosting site. You can also donate money if you want to keep us going. We certainly appreciate that. But like I said, most importantly, we appreciate you just tuning into the show. If you got an idea for a show, you can contact me. We've had many guests that listen to the show come on to the show as guests. You can email me at ryanhornvt at gmail.com. And if you need you need a voiceover service, I'm actually just finishing an audio book right now, you can uh, hire my services for that. Check more out on my website, ryan-horn.com. And as we always try to encourage you, adopt your best friend at your local pet shelter. One of the area ones right now, we're trying in the process to help a friend of ours, help an older friend of his get her a nice little small friend from a local shelter that we also work with around here that's kind of a little bit run over right now. So check them out and get your best friend. They're waiting for you on there. And as I always say, look out for each other. Look out for yourself. Lots of people out there to scam and take advantage of all of us. So we've all got to be alert and on it. And we appreciate you tuning in as always. God bless, and we will talk to you next week.